Good morning, I'm Paul, host of the new PL podcast and founder of the new PL Brand Purpose Institute, where we work with business leaders, employees, and entrepreneurs just like you and empower them to build brands with purpose on purpose. And we do this through an extensive range of workshops and consultancy, strategic council, and keynote presentations. So if you'd like to discuss how to build your brand with purpose on purpose, then just get in touch at principlesandleadership.com. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. In this week's episode, which is our monthly The New PL Business Book Review Club, we speak to the incredible Dr. Ruth Gottian. Ruth is the Chief Learning Officer and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Will Cornell Medicine at Cornell University in the US. Ruth has been hailed by the journal Nature and Columbia University as an expert in mentorship and leadership development. In 2021, Ruth was selected as one of the 30 people worldwide to be named as the Thinkers 50 Radar List, dubbed the Oscars of Management Thinking. And recently, she won the Thinkers 50 Distinguished Achievement Radar Award, given to a thinker with the potential to change the world of theory and practice. And she cemented her place in the process as the number one emerging management thinker in the world. And the research for her new book, The Success Factor, which we are reviewing today, and which officially launches later this week, Ruth studied and interviewed extreme high achievers, including Nobel Prize winners, astronauts, and Olympic champions, to figure out what has made them so successful, the mindsets and skill sets of peak performers, and how the rest of us can also learn how to achieve at these levels. So Ruth, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, perhaps we can start the conversation with you, just giving listeners a bit of an overview into what you do and, and who you do it for. Sure. I am the Chief Learning Officer in Anesthesiology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City, and where I am also on the faculty, and I study extreme high achievers, the Nobel Prize winners, astronauts, Olympic champions, to figure out what has made them so successful and how the rest of us mere mortals can learn how to do that. I quickly realized that an astronaut is just like an Olympic gold medal figure skater. And if that's the case, that means those are learnable skills. And if they're learnable skills, I'm an adult educator, I can teach them. So I go all over the world, talk about success, wrote a book about it, The Success Factor, and here we are. <laughs> and that book is going to be the, the focus of uh, much of the discussion today. And obviously it's released this week as well, which is very exciting for you. Um, so just to set some context for the discussion, why did you decide to write it now and release the book now? What is the, what's behind the timing, if you like? Well, it, it really goes back. I, at the age of 43, went back to school to get my doctorate. I've been obsessed with success for a long time. I didn't understand why some people have it and other people want it and can't get it. So I literally went back to school to study this. And I originally studied the most successful physician scientists of our generation, which is how it all started with Nobel Prize winners. And 
ever since then, I have been interviewing other people just to expand the body of knowledge that's the astronauts and the Olympians, et cetera. And um, at, just before the pandemic started, I released my first book, which was a textbook on medical education. And in March of 2020, I got a call, come quickly, daddy's in the hospital. So I quickly packed a bag, went to the hospital and grabbed the book, which was literally fresh off the press and gave it to him at the hospital. And while he was there, he kept asking me, because I was at his room for endless hours a day, are you getting ideas for your next book? And my only goal was to keep him alive. But um, when he did pass away shortly after, um, a publisher reached out to me. And they said, we'd like to talk to you about your next book. And I said, you know, this is for daddy. Mm. And here we are. When we, when we think of high achievers and, and leaders in their chosen fields, one of the, one of the characteristics that comes to mind is resilience. Yes. And that's a resilient determination that perseverance to just keep going and overcoming and get to the top. But I'd love to explore with you what actually defines resilience you know is it a learned yeah. characteristic an innate one because we talk a lot about it as we come out of the pandemic but the explanation of what sits underneath it the characteristics are less talked about than the than the term if you like right and and i think that before we even get to resilience because you can work really hard at something and not move the needle yes there has to be some some natural talent but you also have to cultivate that talent right if you are the fastest runner here, but you're sitting and binge watching Netflix all the time, you're not going to get better at your craft. And it's something like that. It's fractions of a second. But before you get to the resilience, you have to be resilient and perseverant and have the tenacity and grit towards something you love doing that you are so passionate about. You can't not do it. And when it comes to that, they're naturally working harder. And I don't mean that they're working 18 hours a day. I mean that they are optimizing their work hours. They are able to get laser focused, get into a state of flow, minimize or cancel completely any distractions. So for example, if you, God forbid, had somebody who was dying of cancer and you have this natural interest in science, you decide that you don't want anyone else to ever suffer from this. And you are passionate about figuring out treatments or prevention plans so nobody has to suffer from cancer. So there's your intrinsic motivation, which is mm -hmm. that first characteristic of success. Yeah. There is your passion. Now, when you are able to grab onto that passion, you're gonna work so hard to try to find treatment plans and preventions to cancer. And no matter what the challenge, and there will be challenges, we all have challenges. And let's say for the scientists, it's they didn't get the grant they need to get funding. A paper they wanted didn't get published. The experiments didn't work out. They're not going to quit. They can't because they have a bigger goal at this fire inside of them. And they know they may never cure cancer but what they are working toward can make it a little bit easier to get closer and closer and closer to the ultimate goal. And that's why 
when these people see challenges, and this is where the resilience comes in, they don't question if they will overcome it. They know they'll overcome the challenge. I didn't get this grant, I'll get another grant. The, instead, they question how to overcome the challenge. What is the strategy I haven't thought of yet in order to overcome this challenge? So it's never a question of if, it's a question of how. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. They don't quit. And we all have challenges. The pandemic is just yet another challenge that everyone had to deal with. It's about the adaptability of it and not quitting. So that's a really interesting point. And I, and I was you know, fascinated in your book when I read about the intrinsic motivation side of things as well, because I, you mentioned that some of your interviewees, your, your guests that you spoke to, had tried a few things before they tapped into their yes. North Star, if you like. And it got me thinking about how you may have, how do you recognize the difference between a genuine intrinsic mo- uh, motivation in your North Star and something that you may feel passionately about and you may be fervently supportive of it, but it isn't your North Star and, and you still feel motivated. How do you yeah. recognize the difference, the subtle nuance between the two? That's so true. And it, and it really is, what is that fire in your belly, right? And just because you're good at something doesn't mean you enjoy doing it. And that's what most people don't recognize. They think, oh, I'm good at something. Therefore, I must enjoy it. No, not at all. So for example, two of the most decorated winter Olympians, Apollo Anton Ono, most decorated American winter Olympian, and Bonnie Blair, both of them happen to be speed, uh, speed skaters and both are American. They were both swimmers. They were both competitive swimmers. In fact, Mm -hmm. Apollo Ono was at the state level and they were good. They were really good at it. But just the thought of going into the pool again, it was just almost filled with dread. There was no excitement. There was no fire, but lacing up their their skates and trying to beat their time from the previous practice in the previous race, that lit them up. That's the fire from within. Now, we all know the extrinsic motivation, which is what we used to think is what motivates people, right? Mm -hmm. Give them a bonus, throw some money at them. But all of those external validations, the promotions, the awards, the diplomas, the money, all of that is other people judging us. And when other people judge us, we are going to burn out or fail out because it's just not sustainable. But when it comes from within, that, that's a reason why you get up in the morning. That's the reason you can't quiet your mind at night when you have to go to sleep. You're constantly thinking about it because it's something bigger than you. You would do it for free if you could. And that's something I kept hearing over and over and over again. And you know what? I tell people the astronauts, they're until recently government workers. <laughs> They're not getting paid all that much, but they loved it. They loved it so much. And all but one astronaut who I interviewed had to apply repeatedly. They kept getting turned down. That's how much they love it. That's how much they are not willing to quit just because they were faced with the challenge. There's something deeper inside. So you need to find that passion inside of you. You need to find out what that is. And I actually recommend to people that they do a passion audit Mm -hmm. and the passion audit will really help you figure out what is it you enjoy doing? 
What do you not enjoy doing? What are you good at, but don't enjoy doing? What are the activities you procrastinate doing? What are the things you would do for free if you could? And actually, if any of your listeners want to do a passion audit on, on their own, they can actually, there's one that comes with the book, The Success Factor. They can also download a free one um, from my website. It's ruthgotian.com slash passion audit. And they can, they can just download and, and in five minutes, get some clarity. Perfect. And for listeners, I'll put that in the, uh, the notes as well. Um, you raise a really interesting point around the definitions of success, because we look at successful business people or sports people, and we look at those intrinsic, extrinsic, sorry, accolades, rewards or medals or whatever yeah. it happens to be. And we see those as the ultimate definer of the success of that, that Olympian or whoever it happens to be. But I guess for those sports people and business people, the, the success is defined potentially in a different way. They may be trying to defeat an element of their belief system and getting there is defeated their the, the negative element of their belief system. But the, the middle isn't the reward for that. So how was success defined for your interviewees? How did they how did they define success within themselves rather than just the extrinsic um, accolades that they received in return? You know, it's so interesting. Um, I, I think these are people who have goals, but there's always more goals. There's always something else that they wish to do. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I always ask the, um, the Olympians to show me their medals when we're done with the interview. And only two of them had it on display, mm-hmm. which I thought was unusual. And I said, well, why don't you have it on display? And they said, well, it's, it's a chapter in my life. It's not the entire story. And it's because of that, I think that they didn't crumble when they got their medal. They didn't right. stop when they got their medal. It's just an achievement that comes along the way. Most people actually don't get medals at all. Just getting to the Olympics is a goal. So one of the people who I interviewed was Devin Harris. He's a, a member of the original Jamaican bobsledding team. So if you yep. ever saw the movie Cool Runnings, uh, it, it was about his team. They uh, Getting a medal wasn't even on their radar. Just getting to the Olympics was the goal. Just getting there. And that's what they had to fight so hard for. So I think it's all of these, um, it's the idea of figuring out what you want to do next, but also what is beyond that. Mm-hmm. It cannot be that external validation that that's the reason that you're doing something, because then you'll be one of those 15-year-olds with a gold medal who's crumbling because yes. you are defined by that medal. Not a single one of these high achievers were defined by their success. In fact, when I reached out to them and I said, according to my calculations, you are coming up as a high achiever. And they said, really? And I said, I laughed. I said, you got the Nobel Prize. If you're not a high achiever, what does that say about the rest of us? Yes. So they don't view themselves in that way. They are extraordinarily humble, extraordinarily grounded, and they use their platform for good. They realize that being an Olympian, being a Nobel Prize winner, being an astronaut gives them a platform, gives them a voice, and they don't abuse that. They use it for good, which is why all of these high achievers 
they, first of all, they, they push the boundaries of what we know to be true. They have, they have pushed the field forward in some way, whatever their field is. But they have also, as they've moved up the ranks, they are bringing other people up with them. Mm-hmm. And that is so important. So a lot of them, they're all mentored by other people, but they are also mentoring people. So they, as they move up the ladder, they are bringing people up with them. Some of them do it one-on-one. That's their preferred, preferred way of doing it. But some of them have developed entire nonprofits mm-hmm. around elevating other people and teaching other people and mentoring other people. So for example, uh, Dr. Charlie Camarda, who's one of the astronauts, when he retired from NASA, he said, we need to teach kids how to think bigger. We need to teach them how to not fear trying. And he developed an entire nonprofit called the Epic Challenge Foundation, where he is teaching them to take on epic challenges. And they are actually teaching the adults We know too much, so we fear too much because Mm -hmm. we know consequences. Kids don't know consequences. So he's teaching them to take that and and the kids then are also teaching the adults as well. So it really is a a full circle. So one area I'm particularly fascinated in, when we talk about high achievers, there's a natural inclination to, to think of the best achievers, the number ones in the world, whatever it happens to be, but that's not... The broadest definition of it and you could be I often think about tennis over the last decade women's tennis you've had Venus and Serena Williams who have dominated men's tennis you've had Djokovic Federer and Nadal who have dominated but within that top 10 in women and men's tennis there are incredible high achievers who probably recognize at some point that they are never going to get to number one two or three in the world how do they maintain their intrinsic motivation and their passion for their purpose and their North Star, when probably the recognition is they will never get quite to the top, but they're within touching distance. What do they have to re-engineer psychologically to, to continue that motivation, if you like? Well, that's assuming that their goal was to be number one. True. Right? So the astronauts, for example, who I, who I interviewed, Their goal wasn't to be commander of the International Space Station. Their goal was to whatever their field is, make that difference as an astronaut, be an engineer, be, you know, whatever it is. So everyone's got different, different goals. Sometimes the goal is to play your best game, to do better than you did in your last match, to learn something that will make you better, faster, stronger, more effective, more efficient. That's what it's all about. I don't know of a single scientist who started their goal with with wanting the Nobel Prize. Yes. Their goal was to push a field forward, to find a treatment, to find a prevention, to find a cure for whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That was their motivation. The Nobel Prize was something that came along the way because other people noticed what they were doing. Yeah. Sometimes they feel, yes, they might be a contender and I'm sure they'd be upset if they don't get it, but I don't know any of them who quit science because they got the Nobel prize or because they didn't get the Nobel prize. Yes. Right. So for them, the award is a nice to have, not a must have. You discussed the obstacles some businesses put in place that can 
I guess, inadvertently stifle high performance and high achievement in their organizations, for example. And they could be appraisals or performance evaluations that just end up measuring the wrong things and invariably stimulate disillusionment rather than drives in the mind of the high achievers. Yes. The phrase I loved that, um, or to paraphrase from the book, mm -hmm. in HR, they spend an inordinate amount of energy getting people to average levels. Mm -hmm. And we are in the middle of a great recession or at very least a, a very large one. Yes. So what is your advice as to what businesses can do to reevaluate their own evaluation and performance processes to ensure they uncover or discover and then nurture the high achievers they have in their business? before they actually then become part of the great resignation. Yeah, so so let's let's back and I'll, I'll give people a little context. So when people have their annual performance, let's say it's on a scale of one to five, where three is average and five is the absolute best. If you get a four or five, fantastic, but nobody says a word. You get a three, you're average, you're meeting expectations, nobody says a word. You fall below average, below the three, now you get a corrective action plan with bullet points of what you're supposed to improve. They send you to courses and workshops and training so that you can achieve these different bullet points that you have. And they have a supervisor who checks in with you to hold you accountable that you're actually doing these things. They're spending a lot of time, a lot of money on people who aren't even average. While they're ignoring those who are high achievers. Mm -hmm. Now, what's going to happen is those high achievers are going to notice this and they're going to leave. So the organization is going to be left with, at best, average employees, at worst, below average employees. Mm -hmm. So you really want to really enhance and build and create a robust pool of high achievers and look within those average for those high potentials who with a little push and a little encouragement and maybe send them to some training and workshops, they can become high achievers. So the high achievers, they really need a framework and then leave them alone. Mm -hmm. Let them do their thing. You want them to check in with you every so often just so that you're updated on what's going on. That's fantastic, that's fair. But if you're going to check in with them on a daily basis, just let them do their thing. And you know who they're going to start bringing in? Their friends. And who are their friends? Who do high achievers hang out with? Other high achievers. Other high achievers. Mm. So now you can create your own pool of high achievers that you're bringing into the organization. Now, the money that you were spending on sending all those, those poor performers to courses and workshops, ask the high achievers, say, what is it that you need to succeed? Is there a skill that you wanted to learn? Is there a course you wanted to attend? Send them. Imagine if you spent that money sending the high achievers for a course or a workshop. You know that they're going to bring it back to the organization. And high achievers produce 400% more yes. than the average employee. So why are we ignoring them? Those are the ones that need our attention. So you, you expand on that point in the book and you talk about the the need to incentivize high achievers in a different way they are driven by a different set of motivations to the majority so in terms of those business leaders and, and entrepreneurs listening today how do they identify and incentivize those high achievers in their organization right you know it's um high achievers want to be paid 
what they're worth, right? We all want to get paid what we're worth. But throwing a few extra dollars their way is not a good way to retain a high achiever. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is give them the space, ask them some of those things that they would need in order to achieve, show that you value them. So if there's a way to give them leadership roles, if they even want it, right? If there's a way, something that we call situational leadership, right? So if you are the CEO of an organization, but I happen to be the subject matter expert on something very specific, you don't give the report on that subject. You ask me to give the report on that subject. You can also let your high achiever take on a project, sit in on um, the group meetings with higher up so they understand what's going on. Let them talk to people at other organizations and you wanna introduce them to some of those people, not because you're afraid that they'll be swept away, but mm -hmm. because they can create what's called a community of practice. People who are like-minded, they can learn from each other. There's a common thread in what they do because your organization does not have all the questions and does not have all the answers. But learning something from someone else, that's how you become innovative because mm -hmm. you can learn something and apply it in a new way. And these high achievers, they're always looking to connect dots that other people don't see. They don't see these kinds of connections. So they're constantly scanning, 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 and you need to give them the opportunity to do that. And I think that's really what'll help you recruit and retain high achievers. And what about for those high achievers listening who are in a work environment that isn't conducive to incentivizing their desire to achieve at that level? Is there anything they can do when the management perhaps isn't, not necessarily receptive, but just isn't aware of the opportunities and the, and the way to incentivize? What can those high achievers do to, to elevate their own opportunities within that business? You know, my father told me, you don't ask, you don't get. Mm -hmm. performance is really based um, success I should say is based 10% on performance it's it's the pie yeah. the, the pie acronym 10% on um, performance 40% on your image and 60% on your exposure so how do people know about you talk about you what are you known for and at the end of the day you say I am working on this I would really like to expand, leverage, optimize. And I think this course, this opportunity, an introduction to this person would really help me fill this gap. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're able to help with? Here is how much it would cost. Here's what I think it would help with. People don't know what to offer you. So tell them. Yes. Tell them, ask for it. You're not demanding, you're asking. And sometimes it can be worked out. Very often it can be worked out because this is also a retention strategy of you. And who are your friends? Other high achievers. So you're going to start talking about all of the things that your department, your organization is are, that they're doing in order to optimize your work and keep you happy. You think other people aren't going to be interested? Everybody wants that. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether we're a high achiever or not, many of us fear success. And I wondered why, what, 
What sits at the root of our fear of success? It's scary, isn't it? It's really scary. Um, recently, there was the Thinkers 50 Awards, which, mm-hmm. um, which lists the, the top management thinkers in the world. And I was backstage in the green room, which is the breakout room, um, with some of the winners. And I can tell you that imposter syndrome is real. It is <laughs> absolutely real. Um, we all looked at each other, deer in headlights, just saying, what, what's going on? <laughs> like, what just happened? And I think that fear is because we're not used to that. And we're afraid other people might just say, oh, it was a fluke. Oh, it's going to be taken away. So the problem is we're afraid to start because um, with success, because, and this is what I call the difference between a dreamer and a high achiever. So once you get to that success, it's real, imposter syndrome's real. But getting to that point, most people cannot get out of the starting blocks for several reasons. They're too aimed at perfect. And perfect doesn't exist. And I think once we give ourselves permission to not be perfect, but to actually make incremental micro changes, micro improvements, that is how we will succeed. There has never an overnight success. It's always a long, long, long stretch in order to get there. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I interview all of these extreme high achievers, I tell them, I am not interested in what I can read on your Wikipedia page or your website or Google about you. That's the tip of the iceberg. I am interested in everything below the waterline, what it took to get there. So if you think about it, the dreamers, they talk in general terms, right? Where the high achievers talk about specifics. So the dreamer, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. The high achievers, I'm going to lose one pound, but I'm going to do it 50 times, mm-hmm. right? Small incremental changes, very, very, very specific. Um, the, the dreamers talk about one day I'm going to do this and one day I'm going to do that where the high achievers, they make today day one. Today, I'm going to do this. And they actually work on these small incremental changes. And doing these things will will really help. And there's a lot of information in the book, in the success factor. And also there's there's an article in Forbes that I wrote about um, the difference between dreamers and high achievers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is really turning one day into day one. Yeah. And, and recognize that imposter syndrome is actually, I believe, a sign of strength. And it's a sign of strength because it is, um, you've achieved something that you've never achieved before. And as a result, it's confusing. You're, mm-hmm. not, you're not familiar with it. But because it's so new, it's actually a sign that you've achieved something. And therefore, I think it should be viewed as a sign of strength instead of stress. That's a great way to look at it. Um, for me personally, one of, the, one of my favorite quotes from the book came from one of your mentors, Dr. Bert Shapiro. Yes. And he said, when you were considering your dissertation topic, he said, do something important, not just something interesting. Wow. And I love that quote. And I guess my, my question is with my business and entrepreneurial audience in mind, how do we define important in a broader context? You know, how does an SME, for example, or an entrepreneur yeah know what they're doing is also important. What are the values that we ascribe to important? So it was actually explained 
very, um, very simply to me when, when, when I talked to my mentor, Bert Shapiro about this, he said, if it's important, it will have an impact. Mm -hmm. If it's interesting, it's just a hobby. And if you want to have an impact, you need to do something important. And it's very interesting because I spoke to um, one of the people who I interviewed was Dr. Tony Fauci from the National yes. Institute of Health. And I asked him, what projects do you decide to work on? And he said, I pick things that are important, not just interesting. And I said, I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I realized that, that I was really onto something because if yes. it's interesting, it's interesting to me. It's a nice to have, it's not a must have, but if it's important, it can impact other people and it'll even impact people who I've never met before. Yeah. That's, that to me is, was really profound. Do you have a, um, a guesstimation of out of those you spoke to for the book, how many, how many you felt was their, their role was somewhat inevitable because of their family environment, their history, whatever it happened to be, they were always destined to be an Olympian or, or a, a scientist or a lawyer or whatever it happened to be. And how many kind of drifted into their role after stumbling through a few other, a few other incidental and accidental positions? Most of them stumbled onto it. Um, wow. Wow. And which I was very surprised at. Um, there were a few that, parents were physicians and then they became physician scientists. Yes. Um, none of the Olympians were second generation Olympians mm -hmm. or major athletes. Um, it, it, a lot of it just happened really by happenstance. Some of the astronauts, um, the parents were pilots. One of the parents was a pilot and then they got their pilot's license at a very young age. But there's a difference between being a pilot of a Cessna and flying a, the space shuttle, right? There's a lot of steps in between. Yep. Um, but for most of them, it was really these um, steps along the way um, and people who influenced them and mentored them along the way mm -hmm. who said to them, why not you? Why yes. not you? And that made a, a big difference. One of the people who I interviewed, the story did not make it into the book, um, but he was a, a former Surgeon General of the United States. He, um, African-American, grew up in the segregated South, um, first-generation college student, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So he did not grow up with that at all. None of the astronauts are second-generation astronauts. Um, so it wasn't really about that it was about i'm good at something i really enjoy it and frankly i just can't put it down yeah that's how you know you're onto something mentorship which you touched on there is, is such a huge part of your work and it's such a, an important part of everyone's entrepreneurial or academic journey what are the characteristics we should look for when trying to find a suitable mentor because that person at that critical point of our business life can help us to succeed or fail, really. Absolutely. Um, in fact, there's a lot of research that shows that those who are mentored out-earn and outperform those who are not mentored. And they have lower burnout rates 
and they have greater loyalty to the organization. And when they're faced with challenges, they don't give up because a mentor actually has two roles. One is to help you with your career, right? Make those introductions, teach you some skills, um, you know, uh, develop their network. They believe in you more than you believe in, in yourself. So they say, yes. why don't you throw your hat into the ring for this, et cetera. But there's also the psychosocial support. When you are so deep inside the jar, you can't read the label and every challenge just seems so insurmountable. These are the people who have that 60,000 foot view and can put things into perspective for you. Yes. Say, I know this feels overwhelming right now, but trust me, you're not the only one. This is very common. It's a blip on the screen. So they have those two roles. And when I ask people, do you have a mentor? They say, oh, I haven't really found the perfect one. I said, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. So why should a mentor be perfect? But you can create your own version of perfect. Yes. And that's why the more contemporary approach for mentoring is not some senior person in the organization mentoring a junior person. It's actually surrounding yourself with a team of mentors. So these teams each have the, everyone has a different skill. They don't need to even know of each other's existence. But what happens is you can reach out to different people based on what your needs are at the moment. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I wrote the book proposal for the success factor, I reached out to one of my mentors, Dr. Marie Volpe, who had written several books. She knows all about book proposals. I also showed it to an editor of a journal she knows about writing. I did not show it to the lawyer who had never <laughs> written a book, but is on my mentoring team, right? Yes. If I need help with negotiations, then I reach out to somebody on the, yes. on the uh, who's, who's a lawyer who has experience with that. So you actually create people with a diverse set of skills mm -hmm. that you can learn from, but they have to believe in you so much that they believe in you more than you believe in yourself. So when you get stuck in your rut and you will, we all do, they're the ones who are going to be able to lift you out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Ruth, we always end the podcast with asking our guests or inviting our guests to offer one or two final pieces of wisdom for the listeners to go away and think about and potentially apply to their business from the success factor perspective what would your one or two pieces of wise wisdom be? So what I realized was that um, it all starts with finding what it is that you love to do. Because when you love doing it, it just comes out in your work. Mm -hmm. But realize that what you love to do once, you may not love to do right now. Because whenever there are changes in our lives, transitions, such as a new job, a move, another child, a pandemic. What worked for us before may not work for us right now. So I think being open to all of these opportunities, open to figuring out what it is that you love doing and surrounding yourself with interesting people who are different than you so that you can learn, right? All of the high achievers are constantly learning, constantly. Mm -hmm. And they learn a lot from other people and reading and talking to people. 
And once I realized that, I amplified how often I do that as well. And it makes a big difference because you're learning how things are done in other industries and in other organizations. And that can make you better. That can make your work better. Mm-hmm. So surround yourself with people who are better than you. And Ruth, just one final question. You, you interviewed dozens and dozens of high achievers and before, um, for this book. What was the single answer or expression or experience that had the most profound or lasting impact on you from everyone you spoke to? Um, one of the most surprising interviews that I had um, was with Apollo Anton Ono, the, the speed skater, because he really crystallized that all the training that he did on the ice was important, but it wasn't as important as what he did off the ice. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the proper food and the proper nutrition and proper sleep and getting your head in the right place. And the two of us really geeked out talking about adult learning theories and positive psychology because he knew it all. Yeah. He clearly studied this. And I think that made a that made a big difference for his performance. Yes. During his Olympics and his after Olympics life. And, and that was really that was a lot of fun. Ruth, it's been a real pleasure today. I wish you every success with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for allowing me to talk about the success factor. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about what Dr. Ruth Gottian does and her writing on leadership and mentorship and success, go to ruthgottian.com and you'll find the link in the notes that accompany this podcast. And if you'd like to take uh, Ruth's passion audit or purchase her fantastic book, The Success Factor, then please also check out the links in the notes that accompany this podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to join the new PNL movement for more principled leadership and more purpose-led business, then please go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of our community. So finally, I'm Paul, host of the new PNL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.